Well, hello everybody and welcome to our final webinar in a month-long series on Connected Learning TV here titled Reclaim Open Learning, Learning by Everyone for Everyone. I'm John Barilloni filling in for Liz Losh, um, the community manager of Connected Learning here. And throughout March, we've been catching up with various winners from the 2013 Reclaim Open Learning Innovation Challenge to talk about their recent successes and challenges, and hopefully to inspire some similar-minded practitioners within both the connected learning and open learning communities. Uh, today, we'll be talking with a couple of the leaders from Phonar, which is short for Photography and Narrative, a massive free open photography class. And I believe we'll also be joined a little bit later by Martin Coates from World Press Photo, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the high standards in global photojournalism. But before we dive into the chat, just go over a few quick details like we usually do. So to those participating, participating excuse me, over on live stream right now, uh, we welcome you to use the chat there to introduce yourselves, connect with each other, and ask questions that we can address here in the Google Hangout. And we're also chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community, and also via the hashtag ReclaimOpen on Twitter. And the links for both of those will be in the live stream chat in just a little bit. And we also have a group notes Google Doc for today. Um, that'll be in the live stream chat soon as well. And we welcome you to join us in there to help us capture highlights and share resources related to today's conversation. And we'll keep that doc open to the public. Um, so in case you have people in your networks who weren't able to catch this live, they can kind of rejoin that doc and also keep adding to it, making it a living document. And we're joined by a couple great guests today, and I want to give them a chance to briefly introduce themselves. So, Matt, do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. So, uh, I'm Matt Johnston. I'm a, I'm a photographer, uh, an educator uh, working in Coventry at the moment. I've worked with, with Jonathan on uh, the open classes at Coventry University. Uh, I now run one of those on my own, and I've also developed uh, a project called the Photo Book Club. Uh, which sort of goes off in a slightly different uh, direction, still very open, still uh, kind of sort of encourage learning uh, for everyone, but in a, in a very different way. Great. And Jonathan? Uh, yeah, hi. My <coughs> excuse me. My name is Jonathan Worth. Um, I'm a photographer too. I'm you know, Matt's sidekick. And um, I uh, came to teaching about sort of four or five years ago and didn't know how to teach and didn't quite know what to teach. And so um, open sourced my class. Um, put it on a blog, um, and thank goodness Matt joined me about 12 months later, and um, and and here we are today. Awesome, thank you. And I know some of the people who are joining us on live stream today got a chance to hear a little bit about that intro story to Phonar um, at the recent Digital Media and Learning Conference. So before we kind of get to that story again, I just wanted to do a little bit of an icebreaker here and possibly kind of pick both your brains. Um, this phrase, open learning, um, throughout the month we've kind of heard some different definitions of it, but I wanted to get a little closer to um, what does open learning mean to both of you, respectively? Sure. <coughs> Excuse me, shall I go first, Matt? Um, so, so um, for me, you know, I, um, I came pretty hard to open. Open was a really bad thing for me for a long time because open meant uh, giving my, my product away for free. And uh, so I came very reluctantly to, to open. I thought I used to hold 
open as being responsible for um, for the for the decline and sort of collapse of my business model uh, because I equated open with free, as I say. Um, but but now I, you know, I rethought what what my what my product was, if you will, and um, and I nice, I see open now as being um, as being inclusive, as being uh, dialogue rather than broadcast. Um, and that's that's been a very powerful dynamic to bring to me as a visual storyteller, and um, it's been really useful for me as a teacher. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with with open right now. And, and I usually I always throw connected in as well. I always talk about open and connected. And somebody pointed out to me recently that um, that uh, when I talk about connected, that I generally talk about technologically connected. That we you know that my class is always connected. That the students are all on Facebook, whether I choose to le leverage Facebook as something powerful within the classroom or not. You know, the class is necessarily connected. But they said that connected is is where learning happens. They said connected is is, the, is when more than one person gets together, and and that seemed really powerful as well because that spoke critically of what of what open is as well. Um, so there, that's. I've given you two for the price of one there, open and connected. And Matt? Uh, I think open open for me uh, can be multiple things. I, I think the primary thing is, is that it's an opening up of, of authorship. Uh, it's, a, it's partly a removal of my authorship and partly a distribution of that authorship. And that's something that I, I sort of struggled a little bit with to start with, particularly I think as a, as a young teacher, um, you know, being not being someone who can necessarily stand at the front of the class and say that I have all the answers, but saying that together I'm sure we have some of the answers and we can sort of piece these things together, and and really taking a, a back seat, I suppose, in everything I've done. And I think that's something that, particularly with the Photo Book Club, I've always tried to do, is not be someone at the front who is sort of always shouting about things, but instead to make sure that everyone has the possibility to contribute, to uh, change what they don't like, and then together, I mean, it, it, I suppose the downside is that this, this way of thinking about open means I lose authorship, and perhaps some people would say I lose control, but I think that's a fantastic thing. So to me, uh, yeah, open is, is about opening up authorship. And Matt, you kind of mentioned the student aspect here, and that open learning seems to really uh, transform or even turn on its head that typical student-teacher hierarchy relationship that we're used to. Um, so in both of these instances, in Phonar, in the photo book, and how your students have dealt with it, have they been receptive to this change in the relationship, or is that something they had to get used to as well? Yes and no. I mean, I, I suppose with the classes that are within, uh, within the university, at we, we purposely don't do some of this, uh, some of these big open classes don't happen as soon as the students get to us in the first year because they're used to a very particular way of working and they're used to, uh, I, I suppose it could be thought of as a sort of a fear-based learning that, you know, that they tick the boxes because they don't want to, to have a, a wrap around the knuckles. You know, and it would be a shock to go straight into something like this. Um, but when we do introduce something like this, we're always very open. It's always a discussion. Uh, and there's always room for the students to dictate how they want things to progress. And because of that, um, it, it doesn't seem to be um, a huge problem. They usually sort of really enjoy, you know, the fact that they can get their teeth in something, the fact that they can decide, you know, that at the end of this class, right, we'll do an exhibition or no, we won't do an exhibition, we'll make a newspaper or we'll, we'll make a book or we'll, we'll travel with the work. Uh, they dictate that, not us. And I think that's quite refreshing and that, that for the most part, I think that they all really revel in. Can I pick up a couple of things that Matt said then, John? 
Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, well, the first thing is just because he says he's a young teacher doesn't mean that I'm an old teacher, right? Because um, when we, because that's exactly how I felt when we, when I first came to it, I was a brand new teacher. I had no idea how to teach and genuinely didn't know what I should be teaching because my job changed. You know, photography is going through a paradigm shift. As it turns out, so is teaching. So, um, but so I felt just as effectively uh, new is the word, not young, as Matt at that point. Um, and it was reassuring when you when we threw everything out into beta and said this is this is in beta. Not only is the website in beta, but what we're teaching is in beta. And every, because people came and helped, it turned out everyone else was asking the same questions and wanted to be a part of the solution. You know, but this thing about the students um, getting used to this idea about being peer learners and co-learners, it is difficult. It is difficult because it's very very easy to sit there and be like um, wait to be filled up with knowledge, and um, you know, and they're used to that. They've gone through it very often. Unfortunately, a lot of the students have gone through this uh, this education process where they they're used to be sort of sitting down and being filled up with, with knowledge. And coming to us and us sort of saying, "Well, that's that's kind of not going to happen now," can be difficult. But then generally, there is there's usually a moment. There's usually a sort of a penny dropping moment where where things where things change, and, and you you watch, and everybody kind of looks around the room, and they and they catch each other's eyes. And everyone's usually pretty cool about it, but they they got it, you know, and they get the power of the network and how big this is. Because you describe the classes as massive, and they're not. Be absolutely clear. Our classes are not massive. We have, well, I've currently got, um, I think it's 27 in my class. Matt, how many have you got in your class? I've got uh, 28 in Pickboard. Right. They're, they're not big by any stretch of the imagination. We are a small course. We have max numbers. We have small facilities. We're, but we're big on the outside. You know, we're like the TARDIS, I guess. <laughs> or the, the inverse of that, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, you've got this small, intimate experience, which is, which is kind of, I've come to realize, is our product. It is that really sort of um, safe, mentored learning experience. And you, you open it up. So this year, the, the, the penny-dropping moment this year in Phonar, was when we were in the class and generally the classes are really quiet. People are really surprised when they come in because everybody turns away from the center and they, they look at their own screen and they listen to a lecture, um, an interview that I might have done the night before. Depends how um, close to the wire I'm running it. And they'll listen to this and they'll be tweeting their notes as they go but they'll all be doing it in a different pace. So you know, you've got the people who don't have English as a first language are going slightly slower than the people who do, and you've got those other people who are perhaps not so our or a learner, and they they have to go and look for the pictures to illustrate the stuff that they're they're hearing about. And so a, a twenty minute interview might take generally an hour for the entire group to get through. But all this time, all the notes, all their thoughts are streaming on the twit on the in the Twitter stream, and I'm seeing this. And um, and I'm amplifying it because I'm RTing some of them. And then we get the people that I interviewed. They start to RT this stuff, and I'm storifying all these notes. And then there comes a moment where this time it was somebody just said, "Oh, oh, oh, we're trending." And the class was trending. The class was trending on Twitter. And so they all turn around to see me storifying all their notes, and then all the comments from all the other people that were listening, and all the people that were following the person that was being interviewed. And the whole class, there was just this collective moment where everyone looked at each other and they realized that they were right at the center of this enormous network. At that moment, they get it. They get it that we're all a part of this learning process. That's very exciting. I mean, that's such a privileged uh, place to be, to be, to be there right then. You're describing a very interesting 
I don't know if juxtaposition is the right word, but a very interesting environment where you're talking about this small, uh, intimate feeling for those who are kind of in the know, who are you know seeing this going on, but in a very open atmosphere. I think, um, Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong on the number, but at last count, some of the phone our sessions were getting up to around you know tens of thousands of people participating. So, is it difficult to keep? that intimate atmosphere going or does open do you feel make that easier to do? Um, well I just just to be clear I mean um, lots of numbers get thrown around and, and it's like investment bankers isn't it? Depending sure, on people sure. who are sort of trying to invest uh, trying to convince people the maximum number of people that we've had Matt can verify this is over a 10 week period at just the WordPress version of the class, because the class runs in lots of different environments. The big, the big, the big parties on Twitter for sure. The ma but the maximum over ten weeks on WordPress was thirty-five thousand. So, um, but any one session, with any you know, a Wednesday morning GMT, no, I mean we perhaps get I don't know a few hundred people come maybe. Um, but it, it, no, it doesn't. It's you don't hear that. You don't hear the noise. You can always switch it off, right? So. There's no there's no fight for chairs, you know. And we have very the class. I, there are times when the class cannot is scarily intimate. For instance, one of the tasks that we we set ourselves as um, visual storytellers or people who tell other people's stories is to tell a story of our own that we perhaps haven't shared, and we deliberately make that session closed. We don't broadcast it. We don't tweet it. We sit around in a circle and we all share a story that we've not shared before, and yet. Every year, the students choose to make these into blog posts or or to record their stories and to post them. And if you listen to some of these stories, they are utterly moving. I mean, it's very difficult to get through that session. I wish there would be more funny stories, but generally, this is people. They must value it because they really pour everything into it. And so, yes, you do get this weird juxtaposition, this moment where people are being incredibly uh, intimate, they're surrendering themselves to this process um, in the knowledge that they, are, they sit right at the center of this cloud. But again, you know, all we've had is just really positive experiences. I hope I'm not, um, I hope I'm not setting ourselves up to fall now, but um, you know, so far, uh, generally the experience for everyone seems to be overwhelmingly positive. So. And I'm wondering your description of um, students kind of taking ownership of this course, of their you know production aspect of it, possibly kind of ties into what Jim Groom was talking about a little bit earlier with um, both in the Digital Media and Learning Conference and also in their webinar talking about DS106, this concept of a domain of one's own. Um, so, you know, both Jonathan and Matt, have you seen kind of over the course of how both Phonar and Photobook have developed this kind of increased recognition that students are kind of claiming their own space online? Definitely. I mean, I suppose I'll talk a little bit about the Photobook Club in relation to that. And, and I think it, it's important to note that these aren't, um, I suppose, it, you could think of them as students because it is, a, it is a, I suppose, a learning process. But these people who are part of these Photobook Clubs are, are not necessarily students at universities. Um, the idea started but behind these little clubs is that um, I, I would meet with a group of people who also enjoyed the photo book uh, as a medium, uh, as an object. We'd sit around, we'd have some coffee, we'd have some beer, and we'd look at photo books. So I'm starting with something sort of really very simple, and, and I realise that I can't, um, I can't protect that, I can't sort of copyright that. Not that I, not that I'd ever want to. Um, 
and, and what I've realized as time has gone on, and since I started that one club, there's now 40, there's, there's a 44th even that just launched, launched today. And what I found really interesting is to start with, a lot of those uh, communities would take the logo that I had provided, and they might put their name at the bottom of it, so it would be Photo Book Club uh, Madrid or Photo Book Club Amsterdam. And as I've gone on, this has got, uh, you know, th there's been sort of more and more remixes of the logo, and some people come up with a completely different logo. And people get further and further away from what you originally put forward as, uh, as the sort of plan, I suppose. And people have come up with websites, and some people broadcast these, these events over... Uh, over Google Plus, and some people keep them as really, you know, these, these sort of generative, these really offline events, and then they have them in a little cafe, in, in sort of corner of a cafe with white gloves on and things like this. Um, so there's been a, a real, um, I, I certainly think that people have completely taken this on as something that that they want. I think that's partly because I'm not, uh, I don't get scared when I see things like, I found out today that there was a book club uh, in Montreal that I wasn't aware of. Um, th th this group hadn't. Um, often, people will get in touch with me and say, "You know, can I use the logo? Can I can I use the name and things like that?" The answer is always yes. Uh, this is a branch that didn't ever get in touch. They just started it themselves, and I think some people would find that quite threatening. That that someone is sort of almost sort of taking their idea and, and doing it themselves. But I think that's absolutely fantastic. I think that's really interesting that people now no longer even necessarily see it as something that is connected to me. They still certainly want to be part of this community but they're doing it entirely on their own, and I'm continually giving credit to those people, not to me, because really here I've, I've done very little. Yeah, you'd be also CC, you've also created Commons licensed everything, so it's quite explicit there. People, you know, you, you're not asking people to, to phone up and ask mm. for, for help. I mean, I, I would throw in there, because Jim, Jim talks a lot about space and um, online, and you said they claim their own space, but when I when he says that, I don't know, rightly or wrongly, I always I always hear identity, you know, your identity online, because there is a definitely a process of changing students' existing user habits, no, no, re, not definitely not changing them, sorry, getting to rethink their existing user habits, so it's this process of defamiliarization, so when there is a, you know, we, we're using Twitter and there is another, mo another one of those penny dropping moments was when somebody made, somebody who was very funny, made uh, a joke in class that was very funny. But he chose to tweet it. Now, he hadn't had a Twitter account prior to this. He'd got a Facebook account when Facebook was shared with his friends. And, um, and he, he, he cracked this joke online in the class. And it sort of whizzed around and everybody sniggered and laughed. It was a sort of joke that was kind of inappropriate, you know, back of the classroom type stuff. Um, but when the lesson finished, I said, so let's have a look at how far your joke went then, Kai. I hope he's listening. Um, and um, we did. We used TweetReach to find out how far his um, to find how far his joke had gone. And yeah, I can't remember exactly how far it had gone. It had gone into the tens of thousands of people reached. And there was this sort of collective silence as everybody sort of took that in. And so you know, we had no idea who the audience was. We know who had no idea who was listening in. But we did know. We did know at that point that a second year had had her work seen by an art director who was working in Hong Kong, who had got in touch to edit that work into a book. So suddenly, what was useful and normal and really, really funny and kind of made his identity really on Facebook became utterly inappropriate. And so we had this conversation about kind of rethinking your online identity and thinking of it as a brand, as painful as that word is to some people, um, as a brand. And then thinking about appropriate channels. You know, there are some jokes that you don't make around the around the, the celebratory dinner table with your grandma 
you know, you might make those jokes, you, and those jokes that you do make with her wouldn't really sort of raise a smile when you're out with your friends having a good time, right? So it's, it's pretty common sense stuff, but it's understanding their existing user habits in this sort of analog world and this digital world. And as they begin to understand that, generally, you know, I'm looking to them really by the by the coming by the third year um, to see exactly how how I should be thinking about my online presence. And so yeah, at that point they kind of take a, they take they claim ownership of that identity and they really make it their own. They become they become to be much stronger swimmers, sort of thing. Does that make sense? Definitely. So aside from you know these instances where students kind of. Um, get the light bulb moment that pretty much anyone could step in and see what they're talking about. What are some of the other challenges that you think you've faced either with Phonar or Photobook, you know, either from a, a curriculum standpoint or a logistics standpoint uh, for some of the people who might be thinking about uh, emulating what you guys have been doing? Um, well, you know, um, so, you know, I, I Got to be careful here. You know, I think I think big institutions in general um, um, uh, inhibit innovation. You know, necessarily inhibit innovation because big big systems, big institutions, they they rely on systems systems that run very efficiently, and they rely on everybody um, being very efficient, not questioning the system. But you know, as in, as in the case of, let's say, for instance, photography and teaching, you know, those systems were there to solve problems that um, developed a long time ago, and the, the problems have kind of changed. And so, some of us, someone has got to find new systems. Now, when you do that, you create institutional drag. People start to know, want to know why you're crashing, so why, you're why you're spending more time on this, why, you know, why you're spending time on, on, on that, that we should be doing this. You become a problem because, because in the short term, you're very expensive. Innovation in general in the short term is very expensive to an institution. And so, and so for anyone wanting to try, to try this, you know, you know, you've got to go with your, your eyes open. Unless, unless you have a very, very understanding institution. It's not going, it's to, not be going easy. to be easy. Um, um, however, however, you know, as we know, as we know, these institutions, institutions, institutions fail. fail. Yeah. Anyone that's ever been to will know that no, this is just common sense. That along the long term, it's very costly, costly not to innovate. So you've got to so buy the bullet at some point. And so, and so, my advice my would be to unpick, unpick everything that I've done, done, unpick everything that Matt has done, unpick everything that Jim Groom has done, and Alan Levine and so on. And don't make don't make our mistakes twice. You know, um, um, in some respects, I think we've been the first through first through a breach sort of thing, and it's you know it's generally those people that have a hard time. It's the second one through that generally sort of find find the right stuff to take up, make the money out of it. Kind of like older siblings and younger siblings. But there you go. Yes, that's right. Are you an older one? Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Matt? What are the problems? I mean, I think uh, I'll talk sort of briefly about one problem that I had in um, in PicBod, which is a class uh, picturing the body, and it's all about our sort of our photographic encounters with the body. And, and at times we're dealing with things that are a little bit like the stories that Jonathan uh, talked about in relation to phone. You know, these can be really quite personal things. One of the problems that I had last year uh, was that we we have these really sort of intimate sessions in class that are not broadcast; they're not recorded in any way. And in fact, students don't even bring in digital files. They print images. So it's just the students around the table and these images on the table, uh, which means that everyone feels really quite comfortable. It's a small group of students. We're all really supported. 
Now, uh, just like with Jonathan, a lot of students choose to then put these things online, and one of the things that we had last year uh, were some inappropriate comments about some of these images that were being made. Now, these weren't um, these weren't particularly hurtful. They, um, I don't think they were intended as a, you know, as a spiteful way or anything like that. But nevertheless, it caused an issue with the group, uh, and the group in class were very aware that, that they perhaps didn't want to share if, if this this person was going to be sort of online and looking at these images. So we had to have a, you know, what I think I was I was keen to do was not just make the decision and sort of ban this person. Or, or, or allow it to continue. So I discussed with the group and with the people that sort of were directly affected by it what we thought we should do. And as much as I, I don't like the idea of, uh, of sort of censorship and, and picking who can be part of these things, that's that's what we did. And we removed this person from the group after you know saying you know this this is why it's happening. Um, so I think that that's a sort of um, that's a sort of fairly practical uh, sort of problem that I've faced. I think the other the other thing uh, to say. Is and I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a fantastic thing. Is especially when we're dealing with smaller classes, we're trying to be as personal as possible. We're trying to encourage personality and encourage students to take uh, a role in the authorship of these classes. Is that each time these are going to be different? They're not always going to follow the same structure. Last year, the students that I taught for Pigbot uh, took their exhibition to Spain. They had a travelling exhibition. It, it was in Coventry, and then it was in Spain. Um, that didn't happen this year. They're doing something else. You know, and sometimes if we're talking about institutions, you know, they, they sort of expect the same, uh, you know, exactly the same thing to happen year on year or to directly build on what's happened before. And we really need to recognize that if we're going to encourage students to have some personality and some role in the classes, then each time they're going to be different. It takes, we need to be producing different content, speaking to different people to keep these classes lively for everyone involved. That, that's us as well as the students. Um, and we also need to recognize that it's going to go in completely different directions. Another problem that that, sorry, I'm chucking in loads of problems here, but another problem that that sort of leads to, uh, that, that I've found within the institution is, is in terms of assessment. Because we don't always know exactly what the question is, we don't always know what the answer is, we don't always know how they're going to deal with that answer. And often the assessment criteria within the institution can be quite inflexible. Which means that it can be hard. Sometimes it can be a bit of a, uh, almost a fudge, to try and give them credit for everything that they've been doing, even though it doesn't necessarily respond to the credit that we thought, you know, they might be getting. Matt, that actually brings up a great point that I know um, people who are watching here today and will be watching later. Um, same kind of question that they have for this kind of work that you're encouraging students to do, where a lot of it may be art-based, a lot of it might not necessarily fall into a very typical grading rubric. How do you grade it? I mean, what are some of the mechanics behind um, how students are earning credit within these kind of classes? Do you want I me to I, I, I'll well we'll probably Go try and it. share it and still maybe not get to an answer. But I, I think um, it's it, it, I suppose it, it does sort of fall into a rubric. It, it's we try uh, and remove as much of the subjectiveness as we as we can. Although I suppose that's that's never going to be complete. Um, a lot of what we look for is the reason behind the choices. So you know we've ended up with a particular. Um, a particular piece of art or, or a book or a video, whatever it may be. Now sometimes that may not be um, to our taste, but I think it is it's important that the students understand why they produce that, 
And especially in um, when they're sort of getting towards third year and towards leaving university, who they produced it for. So you know we might mark something that well that simply isn't to my taste. But you know what? For this, you know you've produced this for a for a care home in Birmingham. This is exactly what you know. You've clearly evidenced everything. This is exactly what they are after. But I think there's problems here. There's definitely problems in this way of teaching in relation to this rigid feedback. Yeah, I and mean, the other thing to to add it, it here is um, that you know, the, the university institutions have their own. Um, ways of, of marking stuff and we have to kind of fit around those but um, the big opportunity for us here is that um, you know we're, we're, we're ostensibly photography teachers but we find ourselves you know we're, we're teaching visual storytelling a lot of the time um, now there's a certain amount of algorithmic teaching you can do with that you know, um, can you speak clearly with images? You know, is it in focus? Is is it exposed correctly? Is it blah blah blah? You know, we we nail that in about three weeks. Frankly, we've got three years of this, and twenty we've got to justify twenty seven grand as well. So um, we kind of move beyond that quite quickly because most students will have learned all that stuff on YouTube for free before they get there. Now, the big thing that we can do is we can teach uh, heuristically. We can we can give them problem-solving exercises. And so then the grading, if you will, I mean, I hate grading, but then the sort of way of judging how successful something has been is how effectively have you solved the problem. You know, so as a photographer, I've never, ever been asked what my uh, degree qualification was. So, you know, it, it's kind of moot. Um, there is no rigid career structure in photography, and the job that I used to do doesn't exist anymore. And so that should prompt quite a lot of questions. So what people have always wanted to know is they've wanted to know what my portfolio is. They wanted to see the pictures. And then they want some backstory on the images. Oh, really? You only had 10 minutes to do that. Crikey, you had to tell the story of, um, you know, uh, to, uh, whatever the story is. How do you tell that story visually? You know, surely it would be easy to record an instance. Yes, it would. But So how have you solved these problems? Um, Generally, people want people that make their lives easier and that they can rely on, and people that can think independently. And so, one of the the great opportunities for us is, you know, as we move, we 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 live in a visual culture is dominated by images. We teach people how to read them. We teach people how to understand them. We teach people how to speak with them really clearly. You know, one of the things we do in a networked classroom is we teach them how to get heard. You know, we, we see every day that there are bajillions of pictures being uh, uploaded to everything every second of the, you know, of the day. How do you get heard in all that visual noise? Well, that's one of the things that we've been really successful at. And other classes like Jim, Jim Groom's DS106 have been really successful at. And so then it's pretty simple. You know, you have a different set of measures. Have you spoken clearly? Do you understand um, the importance of being credible and trusted? When everybody's everybody's talking all at once, and the, and the, and and can you be heard? And there are pretty clear measures about that. Have you got people to engage? You know, Matt's been Matt's been banging on about me, about mediating ownership and authorship. Are you ready to do that? How are you going to interpret that? What's appropriate for you and for work for, for your audience and so on? They're all really interesting questions to be as, asking and, and working out together because no one's written this book yet, as far as I'm aware. So um, you know we can just kind of work through that, and it gives us a great license to work this stuff through, this stuff through in beta. And the people that are drawing, being drawn to us to, to ask these questions as well, are blooming fascinating, and they're really supportive. You know, I've, I, we 
I think Matt and I both feel very privileged at this moment to have looked out and got ourselves into this spot where we get to have conversations like this with communities like the one that are listening now and that will be listening and hopefully looking us up on, you know, on a, um, in Twitter or on the, on the website or wherever. Because the really interesting stuff for this, and this is the stuff that's absolutely keeping me awake at night, is moving beyond photography into other disciplines. It's where you move beyond education and you move into industry. Because when you're teaching, when, when you, if you think about industry and you start to work with a company or a brand, you know, they come with their own network bundled in. And, and all you're going to do is you're going to turn their network of, of, of people that are interested in, interested in their product into people that are suddenly speaking really clearly about it and they're engaging and they're doing stuff. And that, I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. So, um, oh, sorry, I've gone off on one there. <laughs> um, more than welcome to. So, out of curiosity, and this might be a little bit of a tangent, um, was there ever any pressure when you were first bringing up this idea for creating phone art to create a traditional MOOC in the sense that we know it? Or was it always envisioned as uh, what you've termed as an open undergraduate class hybrid or the acronym OUCH, if you'd like to think of it that way? So, um, I think Dave Cormier coined the term MOOC and I'm not. I'm not 100% sure. I think it was around 2008-9. I think is that right? Sounds right. right. Yeah. And so it was 2011 that David Kernahan at JISC told me that um, we had been running a MOOC, and yet well, we we started it and we opened the class out on a blog in 2009. I hadn't heard of the the idea of a MOOC. No, no. There was never an intention to be um, to be to be a, to be a Coursera or an edX. You know that was never where we set off set out to be. It was simply to open source the questions and the problems and to learn with a bunch of other people that were really desperately and frantically trying to find these answers as well. Um, I mean, and, you know, what have you got to say about that, Matt? Well, we often get accused of being doing, running MOOCs, don't we? Yeah, I, I can vouch for our lack of knowledge to start with and our, our sort of <laughs> lack of awareness perhaps of what, certainly my lack of awareness about you know what other people were doing, but I think that was, that was what enabled us to do some more interesting things and to we weren't, you know, when, when Jonathan sort of first called me and, and we started talking about how we could take this blog, you know, it was essentially a, a blog post and, and create something bigger, everything just made sense. You know, why would we not have this open? Why would we Absolutely. not make this really small class that we have in Coventry speak to a global community? I mean, that's what that's what we're after here. So everything that, that we were talking about made absolute sense, but at no point was I ever thinking, oh, you know, we could make it look like this or, you know, have you seen this project? I simply wasn't um, involved in those discussions. I wasn't following those those projects at that time, uh, which I think enabled we us were. to do something we that was different. We were too we were too frantic trying to solve our own problems. And and the other thing is, you know, I I coined the acronym OUCH, and it never got any traction, which I think was a drag. But um, but, but it's just a just to make the point that no, ours was an ordinary course in a closed undergraduate um in a closed undergraduate course um. And, but the thing was, it was just like Mike said, it was, it was just appropriate. The, the word to use is just appropriate. That's what the class is. You know, it, if you're not using the internet to teach, then, then you're bonkers, frankly. I mean, how does it not get better with, with that networked knowledge, with all those people to ask, with all those people to draw into the conversation? So it's just appropriate. It's, I, I, everyone will do this, and I'm sure do it better, but... Everyone will do this. 
I think we'll pause for a couple seconds there. I'm sure people are tweeting that out right now. If you're not using the internet to teach, you're bonkers. It seems like it'd be a great uh, bumper sticker right there for hashtag Phonar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Jonathan, I know you were talking a little bit about you know what you would foresee as the future of Phonar in particular kind of branching into uh, other mediums. I wanted to see if you had um, kind of a broader view of, you know, five years from now, what does Phonar look like? And then same for you, Matt, um, PicBot, PhotoBook. Five years from now, are they still operating in the same fashion, just at a broader scale, or are you imagining something different? So, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that Martin Coates hasn't uh, managed to join us tonight. He was, I know that at five to five to the hour, he was stuck in the traffic in Amsterdam because they've got the, the nuclear... Um, uh, summit there. Uh, I hope he gets to join us for a few minutes, because um, you know, in, in to cut the lo that long story of Phonar short, yet yeah, if we we started out with a class of nine people, and within three iterations, thirty weeks, three three iterations of ten, so three years effectively, but within thirty weeks of running it, we got to thirty-five thousand people. Now. That's I think that's exciting, and but that was that was 2009 to 11, 12, and so um, it, the interesting stuff is what about if you start with a bigger number? And I just talked about brands coming bundled with their own networks. Well, the World Press Photo Award, and for those people that haven't heard of it, it that most people have heard of the Pulitzer Prizes for journalism. Effectively, it's it's the Pulitzer Prize for photography for photojournalism. Um, they're based in Amsterdam. But they have a they have a, they have an annual network that people that comes a part of their network over 12 months is 11 million 11 million people. They have two million people come on foot to the exhibition all around the world. The exhibition travels, and when you look at how many people they reach through the newspapers and, and internet, it's just staggering. Now, when they agreed, I've been working with them now for six months to turn this their education program open, to turn it open and connected. And you can do it right now. It's running in North Africa. You can do that. And you can join the millions of people that are going to see that over the next 12 months and take part. And you might even get your project heard amongst theirs. Because the 10 people that are in the room there in um, Tunisia, I think it is right now, they they won. They won places to go to this to this course. But anyone can go and do the classes, and anyone can submit the work. And so, um, so so that I think is exciting. I think that is that's where Phonar is right now. Phonar is running right now in North Africa, effectively, um, or the model, the idea of Phonar is running, um, in, for World Press. You can join it via the Facebook page. But what's going to happen in the summer? And this is what. Um, Frantically working on right now, which is, um, which I think is going to be the biggest. I think this is the first time we've talked about it as well. It's going to be the biggest photo class in history. Um, it starts with t uh, ten thousand kids that are that are going to be reached and signed up in five cities in America and the entire st state of Idaho. Which um, who's going to turn that down? And um, it looks like it's going to happen in Ireland as well. And I'm re and we're really excited. We're really hopeful that World Press is actually going to bring some some more um, people involved in it as well. So. That's running in June. I, anyone will be able to join in that online again. Um, we're still working on the name, but that—I mean, this is this is where Phonar is at right now. You know, it's drawing in industry. It's working in around the outsides, around the outskirts of traditional educational institutions, um, and it's drawing those things together with people that are really passionate about the subject area. Um, so that's where Phonar is going. What about you, Matt? Where are you going? Well, 
Uh, I'm not sure. Um, the, the, for the photo book club, I, I used a, an analogy recently about you know the photo book club kind of being a, a bus, and I don't really know exactly where it's going. I know it's going to go somewhere interesting because it's led by interesting people, but I don't know, and I can't really pull the pull the cord and, and get off. So I, I genuinely don't know where it's going. There are a few things that I, I'm really keen to do. Um, primarily, it's access. Uh, the, the focus of this sort of global community. And the focus of all of my efforts is on increasing access and conversations around the photo book, which is something which is expensive to ship, it's expensive to buy, it's expensive to produce, you can't get hold of them everywhere. So um, I know that there are people all over the world who want to see more books, who want to talk about these books, who want to learn with these books but don't necessarily have access to them. So one of the ways in which uh, I'm hoping to change that is that uh, I sort of encourage and actually support people to set up these book clubs, sort of these satellite book clubs um, in places where perhaps it's a little bit more difficult to. I work with publishers to ensure that books can reach people. Um, I'm going to be working with some schools to better understand how uh, people from a post-literate society can, can still gain things from spending a decent amount of time deep reading a photo book. Um, so there's all these sort of things, but essentially it's all around access to the photo book for me. There's something we've not spoken about actually, and I just want to throw it in here because um, people. I mean, this is great that Matt's talking, and great that we're getting to talk together because it's usually me that gets pushed in front of people, um, and Matt and I have done all this stuff together. Um, but there's something that Matt did with the photo book club, which I found so exciting. We looked at when we looked at the the Twitter sphere that um, Martin Hawksey made. And if, you, if you've not seen that, then please do go to phonar.org and look at the Twitter sphere that that Martin made. You can see this. You can see this cloud. You can see this cloud of people online that are all um, all talking about phone or engaging in some some way, shape, or form. And at the centre of it, there is this dark spot, and that dark spot is the physical classroom on the ground floor, the back of a converted cinema in Coventry. But those networks um, seldom come together. If you look at them geographically, they will cluster here and there. And then when that happens, then you can begin to introduce people. You know, those numbers turn into names and you can get people to come together. But what Matt did really, which I think is super exciting, and I'm stealing this idea this summer, is he bundled up a box of books and sent it around. He posted it. Super lo-fi answer again. He posted it off, and I don't know if he put a journal in there or someone else put a journal in, but um, the bo so another club said, well, we can we get the book? In fact, I shouldn't tell this story, Matt. Do you want to tell this story? Yeah, so uh, I mean, th this was partly a way to get these communities to talk to each other because they were satellites that were communicating, I suppose, through me and through the main website, which seemed like um, you know that, that's just not a good way of doing things. We have, I think, there's eight clubs just in Portugal alone, and some of them knew each other, but a bunch of them didn't. So the idea was to have um, to get donated from publishers some uh, some current photo books uh, that were really interesting that we were going to promote a load of discussion. Um, package them up in a box and send them around the world. And all, all these different clubs, all they actually have to do to get them, uh, to, to reach them, is just pay for postage to, to, to get to them. And between sort of 15 or, or so members, it turns out somewhere between sort of 2 and $5 to get these, these seven brand new books. And most of them now actually are, are quite rare and worth a lot of money. So this went round, and, and what it meant was that every community talked to the community just before them. They talked to them because they had to arrange for the box to get delivered to them and where to pick it up from and payment and all these sorts of things. But also I put this journal in 
to, to, to have these discussions go from community to community. Um, and at first, I was, I was actually hoping that this might happen online, but I quickly realized when I talked to a few of these communities that they, they loved the fact that this connected element happened offline, that this was something that stayed to these sort of these, these small and these intimate experiences, was written down, handwritten in this notebook and sent on. And actually what's happened is that the journal is full, so someone, um, I think someone in Tokyo has bought a new journal, so that's in there, so there's now two journals in there. And people started putting other things in there. They started putting some of their own books, and they started putting stickers and flyers and postcards. And so I have no idea what I'm going to receive back. I'm going to receive all the books, but there's also going to be a whole mess of, of really interesting things from, from different places. And these communities are now forging close relationships with one another. And, and I'm not operating as a middleman. I think that, that goes, again, with what I said to start with about this, this opening up of the authorship. I'm really trying not to be a middleman. I'm trying to get these communities to speak to one another uh, and remove myself from that because I, I, I'm not needed in there. And actually that takes away some of that really interesting connection. If I'm sort of constantly peering over people's shoulders and checking things that are done the way that I might think is the right way to do things. Um, actually the, 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 there's going to be a second box of books. The current box is in Vancouver and there'll be a second box launching this, this month from a festival we held with the Photo Book Club Paris. Uh, last last October now, so yeah. And sorry to be joining you late. I'm Liz Losh of the Reclaim Hi, Open Learning uh, Working Group, and uh, I'm at UC San Diego. I'm the director of the Culture, Art, and Technology program, and it's been really great to listen to Matt talking about ways that you kind of build in the social rituals of politeness, civility, and hospitality, so that you can sort of let groups um, handle these dynamics on their own, and I know that's also an important theme in Jonathan's work and something that he really developed in the interview with DML Central where he was talking about how do we teach people the norms of social relationships, how do we teach them you know, mutual respect. Um, so maybe that kind of leads into one of the questions from our live stream uh, about you know, why do we have to reclaim open? Uh, when was it lost? Um, so uh, you know in some ways, you're arguing for a certain kind of closeness and and kind of closeness where people understand the norms of a particular community. But you know, we're also talking about openness. So why why reclaim open learning? Yeah, I, I answered this question I think um, at um, at, a, at a conference in Boston some time ago um, because I felt guilty answering it because everyone jumped in with really good answers, um, felt feeling as though open had been robbed and uh, they needed to reclaim it and stamp out this gate this ground. Um, but I never felt any ownership for this notion of open, and so I really didn't. I felt, really felt quite guilty, sort of saying that I was going to reclaim something that I'd never really owned and I'd only come to um, reluctantly anyway. Um, but I, I do have a couple of things to chuck in. One was um, that I realised what open isn't, and I realised that why I realise now why I'm so disgusted uh, when people describe my the stuff that I do as as being uh, what I've come to understand as a MOOC. But I know it wasn't what Dave Cormier intended. Mm -hmm. But when I tried to sign up to, uh, I can't remember whether it was a Coursera or an edX or whatever it was. Um, I think I went. I, I can't remember how many words I could not bother be bothered to read. How many pages of text? How many terms and conditions I had to go through? You know, and I'm sure a few of them said that I had to sort of donate a kidney, and no one will ever know unless they actually sort of do sort of spend a week reading through all that nonsense. But I realised that that was definitely not open. 
this was not this was not what I was what we were doing with our class. This was not the supportive. This was not the the open door. You know, come in and let's let's beta this through and uh, together. Um, that's definitely not my idea of of what I do or what I ever want to be involved in. Um, so if reclaiming open means to reclaim some of the stuff that that Matt and I are still doing, really working really hard on, we work really hard on this every day. Then. Yeah, let's. Uh, I hope people, other people, will come and join the fight. You know, I'm really excited that people like. I've got to shout him out. People like Simon Lancaster, who is uh, taking phone art, a photography course, and he is he's he's um squashing his chemistry course into it, and and he, I mean that's bonkers. That's bonkers. We talked about bonkers earlier on. He's bonkers, but I think that's awesome, and I'm so excited every time I see the the new stuff that he's doing, and the, there's new things that he's think, thinking about that I totally haven't thought about that I have to pretend I did. Um, so I think that is the stuff that we need to reclaim. You know that that stuff of that that idea of 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 collectively solving these big problems and working out what the questions are, rather than just adopting systems that um that were really built for other problems. So yeah, that, that there that's um. That's what I. That's what I. That's why I'm excited about us reclaiming open. Are you going to reclaim open, Matt? I, I don't feel like I need to reclaim open. I, I suppose I, I feel maybe I need to go back. You know, I, I suppose I am. I am sort of, you know, generally for these little communities to hang out offline and all sorts. But what I'm fundamentally interested in, if if we're going to reclaim open, is that open uh, shouldn't necessarily mean uh, open. Open can mean closed. Open can mean that someone can take part by only turning up to the pub or the cafe and bringing along a book and never logging on and never doing anything else. But open can also mean that someone organizes that event and someone has a Facebook page or and someone invites people to speak. And it also means that someone can create a whole network. You know, open can be something that someone can... Uh, I, I love the idea that someone has no idea who I am, has no idea what the Photo Book Club is, but goes to an event every month. And that's all they do. And I think that, that can be open and maybe something's... Uh, not been lost, but you know, I suppose all, all of the talk about open is is very much about um, uh, often these sort of big connections, these these online communities, which I think are, are fantastic, really important. And I I, I use them in the photo book club and in Pickboard and, and of course in Phonar, um, but there's much more to it, and there can be much more to it than that. Go ahead, Sorry, Jared. Oh, I was very just very quickly. All I was going to say is that. Um, uh, every now and then one comes across someone who um, has their measure of um, efficacy, their measure of success is, okay, so how many people completed the course then? Um, how many people, and, and I sort of, this is something that really bothers me because, um, you know, my dad left school at 14 and he's now 75 and he, he didn't stop learning at 14. And so I would, I would, I would say, I would suggest that in fact the vast majority of his learning was, was outside of a, of a traditional educational institution and it wasn't within these 90 minute classes or 10 week courses or three year degrees, right? And so when somebody comes to Phonar and they drop in or drop out, it doesn't mean that they haven't been a really valuable part of the network, a really valued part of the network. It doesn't mean they haven't had any takeaway, they haven't learnt anything. So that that yeah, I mean that's just a build on Matt's idea of people dropping in, dropping out, and um, being feeling free to do so as well. We're not feeling as though they failed if they haven't got everything or attended every class, or you know that that sort of um, yeah. Yeah, I mean we talk about a lot about tiered experiences uh, and sort of tiered yep. pricing and tiered products in relation to photography, and the mm -hmm. fact that you know, one of Jonathan's experiments showed that 
you know, there, were, there, was, there was absolute worth in producing something, uh, pun fully intended, that was a limited edition one of one, you know, even though it was still available for free online as a massive file that everyone could download. And I think with these open classes that we're talking about, you know, it is that tiered experience. There should be a way for someone to engage at all of these different levels, if, if possible. So maybe some quick final thoughts, um, sort of where you see uh, this initiative going uh, from here, and uh, and then I'll wrap it. And this, this, um, so I mean, I just mentioned the uh, the World Press Photo Award um, education stuff that's happening right now. I mean, that's is where that I think is really really exciting. For me, the the big thing. I kind of made this point sort of um, long-windedly earlier on, is to explore the um, sort of slightly more non-traditional ways of teaching and in teaching and learning. So perhaps on the edges of the institutions. So we, we've got the classroom of 29 people who are buying this premium version of the product, but then it's to explore more the network more thoroughly that that hangs around outside the classroom uh, online, and then it's also to explore those opportunities, those dynamics within existing networks, so within industry. You know, quite frankly, if I wanted to, to learn about car design, um, why wouldn't I go and, and get a degree with Rolls-Royce or with, you know, GM, I, I, I don't know, name your car, not, I'm not into cars, but, you know, if I, was, if I wanted to do a degree in chemistry, then I would, I'd want to, why wouldn't I want to go and do it with Procter & Gramble? I don't know. The point is, I think there is really exciting opportunities there um, to, to to use some of these dynamics to, and to use their networks and uh, some of the stuff that's really worked and find some new systems. So that's the thing. They are the things that I'm really excited about. Really excited about exploring. Anything else, uh, Matt, that you would add in terms of moving uh, your initiatives forward? Yeah, I mean, I've talked a little bit about sort of where I maybe see the photo book club going, but you know that I'm not entirely in control of that. I think the other thing to say maybe is that. I'm really keen to, to maybe work and start speaking with other people about how some of the things that I think have worked well with the Photo Book Club can benefit other initiatives. You know, uh, Jonathan's talked about the, uh, you know, this sort of parcel of books, this box of books, which helps to sort of form tighter bonds between communities, but also, uh, you know, this idea of, of mobilizing communities and actually having people meet in, in, the, in the physical world, uh, as well as how that sort of meeting relates to the to, to the sort of online discussions that take place. I'm really keen to start having more conversations around that. You know, I feel that, that, that the book club is a point where I'm sort of fairly confident talking about, um, I suppose, some of the sort of strategies that, that I've used. So I, I'm using this as a, as a place to ask for people to get in touch. <laughs> Cheeky. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for a fantastic conversation. And my apologies for joining you late. Uh, by tomorrow, we should have a full recording of this webinar and other curated content uh, up on www.connectedlearning.tv that you can share with your various networks. Uh, this wraps up our final webinar, webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean our conversations have to pause here. Um, we're encouraging everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag ReclaimOpen, all one word, and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. If you'd like to learn more about the exciting work that Phonar is doing, you can check out their website at phonar.cov. Phonar.org will do it, Liz. Okay, phonar.org and the hashtag phonar on Twitter. 
Uh, join us here on live stream next Tuesday, April 1st, as we kick off a month-long series with the National Writing Project. Yay, writing! On equity and learning in the 21st century classroom. Visit www.connectedlearning.tv for more info. Thank you 